I think we would have to go back to 1999 and the, uh, you know, the months leading up to Y2K uh, to find something comparable to the frenzy that is surrounding us now as we approach the epic eclipse of 2017. It's unbelievable. I can't stand it. And the fact that you didn't know this, but now we do, that we, many of us, live in the path of totality. You know, it sounds like a Transformer movie or something, right? It makes it even crazier. Oh my goodness. Dr. K. Russo describes what we are about to experience tomorrow afternoon. Quote, a total eclipse allows you to experience the three-dimensional nature of the universe. The sun, the moon, and earth are all in perfect alignment. And you are standing in the shadow of our magnificent moon. The scale is unimaginable. You can literally feel the ominous shadow before it arrives. The temperature drops. The wind picks up speed. Moments before totality, a wall of darkness comes creeping towards you at speeds of up to 5,000 miles per hour. You feel alive. You feel in awe. You feel a primitive Fear, end quote. I can't wait. <laughs> All right, I don't figure out where I can get the most of that. Well, we've arrived in our study through Mark's gospel at a similar event. What do I mean? Well, we've come to a cosmic event that left some in this event feeling alive, some feeling primitive fear, and some feeling awe. Uh, it's when heaven touches earth in such a way that it dwarfs every solar, I mean, you could take every solar eclipse in the history of the world and it wouldn't match this cosmic event that we speak of in our text today. It is the hour of the death of the Son of God. There is a darkness that happens, literally, in the story. It's not because the planet and the moon and the sun align. It's because God the Father is keeping a promise. At infinite cost to himself, he is making a way for us to be back into relationship with him. We are at the cross. The cross. There is nothing more central to our faith than the cross. Paul summarized it this way when he just decided, I'm going to throw everything out except what I must say. And what did he say? Rob and I talked about it last week, 1 Corinthians 2.2. For I determined to know nothing among you. I don't want to know anything else. I will know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the event that we are at. And my hope is tomorrow, wherever you are, I don't know, you know, if you're in the path or you're not in the path, you're going to experience something tomorrow when the moon covers that sun that those cosmic events, while you would, you know, it'd be fun, it's going to be exciting to see, I pray, that, I pray that your mind would drift back for a moment to this text in Mark wherein we see a darkness unmatched unmatched in the history of the world, a darkness that in fact leads you and I 
to light and to life. Let's take our Bibles and open them to Mark 15. We're in Mark 15, verses 33 to 47. I'm going to read the passage in its totality. I'm going to comment on it, because I'm going to just kind of do a running commentary. And then I'm going to come back, and we're going to look at, at two events and two people. Okay, there's the, we're going to look at two events and two people. And when we look at these things, we are going to understand theologically what's happening. Oh my word, you know, this, this would be a week-long seminary class, the theology underpinning this, what's happening. But then we're also gonna look at the practicality of it. Okay, I understand what this means theologically. What does it mean to me now? With that, follow along in your Bibles. I'm gonna start in verse 33 and we're gonna start, stop, start, stop. So just stay with me. Keep your finger on the text itself. It begins... When the sixth hour came, stop right there. Look at verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is nine in the morning. So verse 33 begins, it was the sixth hour. What time of day was it? This is happening. How long had Jesus been on the cross at this point? Say out loud. Three hours. Rob reminded us three hours focused not so much on the physicality Mark describes, but on the emotional and relational cost he was bearing as he was shamed for three hours. Why? Because he's dying to take away our shame. And not to minimize the physicality of the cross, you all, but the pain of shame, and I say it this way, the emotional pain, and there'll be a deeper pain coming in a moment, is far deeper and lasting than the physical. I've got scars on my body, stitches, whatever, surgeries, don't bother me at all. I've got shame and emotional wounds, don't we, that go a lot deeper. Jesus is absorbing it for us. Okay, he's been on the cross for three hours. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. What time is it now? Say it out loud. Three in the afternoon, think about this, the brightest time of day, darkness, three hours of darkness. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, literal quote from the psalm, the messianic psalm of the father forsaking here the son. When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. These had to be Jewish bystanders because the Romans wouldn't know who Elijah is. But the Jewish, the, the, the Hebrews, the Jews knew that Elijah, it was believed, was gonna come and rescue people when they're trouble. So they're going, I think Elijah may come. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him a drink saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, I've always thought that was, you know, mocking him again, but this is not the mocking drink they gave him. Y'all, this is like giving him Gatorade of the day because this cheap, yes, sour wine was a very common drink of the laborer and the, and, the, and the soldier because it rehydrated quickly. It popped energy into your body, like five-hour energy drink. Now, why would they give that to Jesus? Because they want him to live longer. Why? They want to see, see if a sign happens, if a miracle occurs. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, as all good Jews would be. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Now, stop there for a moment. Pilate was wondering if he was dead. Now, when a person was crucified, it was a long drawn out death. You all, a person could hang on a cross for days and be alive. Think about how, how it, you know, the die of suffocation. That doesn't just happen like, boom, you're dead. Uh, they would come in and out of consciousness over hours, over days. And so Pilate's going, he can't be dead yet, can he? And therefore he seeks confirmation. And summoning the centurion, this guy's seen death before, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the, the literal, the, the Greek word here is the corpse, is what it means, the corpse to Joseph. Jesus was dead. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Two events and two people. The two events I want us to consider, two supernatural events in the text, would be the darkness and then the tearing of the veil. So we're gonna look at two events, the darkness and the tearing of the veil. First part of our exploration of the passage. Let's start with the darkness. This was not an eclipse. How do you know it's not an eclipse? This is the time of the full moon, the Passover. This moon's not in the right spot to be an eclipse. But it is a darkness that while we can't explain exactly what it is, we can't deny its reality. And when we look at our Bibles and we try and identify what does darkness mean in the Bible, darkness does not mean the absence of God. Like God's gone, so now it's dark. No, quite the opposite. Light and darkness, according to the Bible, are the same to God. Darkness in the scripture most often refers to God's presence in judgment. It's his presence in judgment. Now, we could go to a number of Old Testament passages, but I'm only going to quote one, Amos 8, 9 through 11. Don't turn there for time. I'll read it. The prophet Amos is prophesying to the northern kingdom. You know, Israel's into two kings at this point, Israel and Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, just late 700 BC, they are off the reservation. They have forsaken God. They are in idolatry, and God's going to judge them, you see. And Amos pronounces the judgment. Now listen, and, and I'm gonna say a number of things over the next 10 minutes. I want you to really be tracking and you connect the dots as we go. Listen to Amos as he prophesies against Israel, the northern kingdom, and indeed that judgment did fall. 
It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Then I will turn your festivals into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Sound familiar? Did that happen to Israel? Yes. See, remember prophecies go like this. It's like you see this prophecy here and you can't see that one. But yes, it happened to Israel, the northern kingdom. But it's foreshadowing what? Even the thing we see today in our text. I want you to turn in your Bibles all the way back to the beginning, please. Go all the way to Exodus. This is the only time I'm going to have you turn, and you're turning a long way, but I want you to see something. Exodus chapter 10. Uh, here is the judgment of God uh, that we see. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at God's judgment in Mark. I want you to see that God foreshadowed this 1,500 years before it ever happened. You've got to pay attention to the text as I describe it. Here's the context. The nation of Israel is in bondage. Hmm. The nation is in slavery, okay, to Egypt. God is going to deliver them from their bondage and set them free. And he sends a man, one man, Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and God begins to pronounce judgments upon Egypt. Now, this what we're reading in verse 21 is the next to the last plague. This is the next to the last judgment. So, so get this in your mind's eye. You're going to see darkness, and then we're going to know there's deliverance. This is what this story shows. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Have you ever, you ever felt darkness? You know, I, I haven't, many times, you know, I'm not a spelunker. I, I don't like, I would never get in a cave on purpose unless it was Ruby Falls, which I have been in Ruby Falls in the cave in there. And you go in and do you know they cut the lights off? You ever been in there when they cut the lights off? And there is a darkness, you all, in a cave that is beyond anything you, you would experience anywhere on, on land. And it's a darkness that you feel. It, it, it feels like you're swimming in black oil. You can't see your fingers. And you could stay in there for a day and your eyes won't adjust because we weren't made for that kind of darkness. And this is a darkness that's felt and falls on the land for three days. Even as there's darkness, right, in our passage in Mark. Now, God, out of this darkness, judgment falls, and then we know that God's going to deliver them, right? So darkness, then deliverance. God makes a way for the Israelites to avoid the final plague. The next plague, the next judgment is what? Death of a firstborn. Now, stick with me on this. So, God says to the nation, to his children, the death angel is gonna visit, and he's gonna pass over the homes. Now, the firstborn, male or female, human or animal, will be taken by the death angel, will, be, will die. But you can avoid the death angel if you will kill 
an unblemished lamb. Kill the unblemished lamb, take the blood of that lamb and put it on your doorpost. This is the door frame. Put it on the door frame of your home. And that night when the death angel passed over Egypt, every home that was under the blood of the lamb, every home under the blood of the lamb, no one died. But every home that was not under the blood of the lamb, the firstborn was taken. Don't miss this. God's children were delivered from death by death. Do you see that? They were delivered from death by death, by the death of a lamb. In other words, you can die your own death or a substitute lamb can be death for you. Now, flip all the way back over to Mark again. Mark 15, the day of the death of the Son of God. Darkness, deliverance. What did John the Baptist say of Jesus when he saw him walking toward him in John 1? Behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world 1,500 years earlier. You see, God had them take an unblemished lamb. And now the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. Well, don't miss that Jerusalem at this time was brimming with people. I mean, there were a lot of people there in Jerusalem. Ancient Jerusalem is not very big. And everyone was there because it was a festival. Which festival were they celebrating at the time of Christ's death? You tell me. Pass, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what they were doing. Passover, Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> Do you see this? and the lamb is slain. It's what we're reading. How is it that Jesus takes away sin? 1 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I want you to sit with that for a moment. Let that sit upon your heart just for a moment. Jesus became Sin became sin. You see, the darkness was God's judgment that was focused like a laser beam on the one man who was innocent. It didn't fall on all of us. It didn't fall on the ones who spit on him. It didn't fall on the ones who lied about him. It fell on the innocent one, you see. God's penalty for sin upon Jesus. Why, God? Why, God, would you, why would you pour out your wrath on your son who's innocent? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why God? Love. 
one commentator describes it this way. Bear with me, it's a little long, but so descriptive. What's happening here? The father looks at Jesus, the pure and innocent one, and sees there the guilt of a billion sinful lives. And he holds the son to account for all of them. In these agonizing hours, Jesus is a terrorist, a mass murderer, a rapist, a child abuser. He is an armed robber, a drug dealer, a gangster. Jesus has stolen, blasphemed, bribed, walked out on responsibilities, cheated in exams, envied the rich, looked down on the poor. He has left the truth half said. He's talked behind people's backs. He's dodged taxes, fiddled with expenses, snapped in impatience. He said one thing and done another, held grudges, failed to offer a kind word when he had the chance. And on and on and on we could go, couldn't we? He became sin, became sin. Every sin that you and I ever committed. Now, my memory is so bad, I can hardly remember high school. So I'm assuming I didn't sin in high school. But every sin we've ever committed in word, in thought, in deed, a sin of omission, a sin of commission, you can't recall it, but it's sin. You see, Jesus took it upon himself. Past, present, and future sins. It's all on him, it's all on him. And so therefore, with the sin of the world on him, he's become it, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, laba samaktani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And now we enter into a realm that I do not have words to describe. We cannot fathom this. Do you remember when he was in the garden and he, and he sweat like drops of blood? Y'all, what, what, what he knew was coming and again, I don't mean to make light of the physical torture, but Jesus, can I say this, wasn't in that garden dreading the whip that would rip his back open. He wasn't dreading the spit that he would put on him. He wasn't dreading the mocking. Do you know what he was dreading? You know what he was dreading? He was dreading this, that with sin upon him, that he is sin. The father would turn his face away from the son. And it has not been that way for all eternity. Why would the father turn his face from the son? Because he's sin. And a holy God can have no sin in his presence. Be careful here. It's not that the Trinity was broken. We can't go there. Theologically, the Trinity's not broken. But in a way, you and I can hardly get our head around. The father must forsake the son and it is a pain in the heart of God and in the heart of the son that no human being can comprehend for if you felt it you would be vaporized you couldn't handle it can take it and Jesus cries out I mean this is the cost of our sin now this is where I want to go for you to consider because this is where I tend to go and I'll just offer this it makes me aware of the, 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 the cost of my sin. And it makes me aware that I tend to take sin pretty lightly. Um, you know, I, I sin and then go eat lunch. 
uh, I sin and then just kind of, I know, I'll take care of that. But sin, y'all, this is where it, it, a thought that's an inappropriate thought, (laughs) you see, cost Jesus the face of his father. He bore the wrath. He, in the garden, he said, I got to drink the cup. He drank the wrath of God till the cup was empty. It's all poured out on him, the one who didn't deserve it, so that it might not be poured out on us who do. That's the darkness. How about the veil? Let's go there, verse 38 says that the, and when he breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Y'all, there are two uh, curtains or veils in the temple. And uh, you might des- I might describe it like this. You know, there's the, 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 right outside, imagine there was a big curtain right here and behind it, there was an enclosed building. That would be where the holy place is and the holy of holies. But out here, the sunlight would be shining and we'd be, in the, we'd be in the immediate outer court. And there would be a big curtain right here that separated the outer court from the holy place, which is the first room inside the temple itself, the building. Does this make sense? So there's a big curtain here. But then if you went through that curtain, then imagine that this was another curtain. Imagine this was a whole curtain because this place is called the holy, the holy place. That place inside that curtain is called the holy of holies. Now, who is present in there? Tell me, who's in there? So does God. Now, there's a big curtain separating right there and only one man could ever go in there one time a year. And I'm telling you, with the massive rituals, kill a lot of animals to cover for the sin, tie a rope around his feet in case he, a foot, in case he goes in there and he's got sin and if he dies, we gotta pull him out because no one can go in there and live. That's, that's where God's presence is and that's what we were made for, but no man can go in there except the one. I think the context best fits that it's not this curtain, it's the inner curtain that tears. Could have been, I don't know. But I think it's the inner curtain that tears. When you read Hebrews 10, write that down. Hebrews 10, you will see it describes Jesus as opening the veil. And the picture is that it's torn from top to bottom. God tears what man can't tear. Man can't tear it from bottom up. God must tear it. And when the veil is torn into the presence of God, we go according to Hebrews 10, because of the blood of Jesus. That's the picture of the veil, it's torn. Darkness, the veil. Let's go to the two people. Two events, two people. The centurion, verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. It's an amazing statement. Let me show you how amazing at one level. Mark chapter one, verse one. Okay, the very first line of the gospel account, Mark writes this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So we go, this is about the son of God. Mark chapter one, verse one. All the way through the book, no person ever says you're the son of God. No person ever addresses Jesus as the son of God. Nobody, until you get to the end. And in Mark 15, of all people, a dadgum Roman soldier whom the Jews despised, correctly identifies and sanely says, 
you are the son of God. Now, those words were spoken only one other time between chapter one and chapter 15. It was chapter three and it was a demon. It was a demon. You're the son of God. You know, Mark's gospel was written to Roman Christians. I've got to believe it's some measure of encouragement to them, don't you think, when they originally read this and they went, there's a Roman, those guys are brutal. They would never come to Christ. They would never acknowledge Jesus. Oh my, this centurion has correctly identified Jesus as the son of God. Now, was this centurion converted here? We don't know. I don't know. I know this. What he said is absolutely true. Now, Mark has put the centurion in a pretty sharp relief with the bystanders and religious leaders. Here's what I want you to consider. The the bystanders and religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign. Well, come down from the cross if you're God's son, then I'll believe. Uh, You saved others, save yourself, then we'll believe. Let's see if you can do something now and then we'll believe. What happens with the centurion? Now, he has seen men die on the battlefield. He's killed men, no doubt. And he's certainly seen hundreds die on a cross. He watches Jesus breathe his last breath. And he knows, surely this man is the son of God. Show me a sign and I'll believe. He just watched him breathe his last and knew. In other words, those who ask for the sign, a miracle, do something amazing and I'll believe, don't believe. And the one who doesn't ask for that sign, miracle, amazing sign, comes comes to believe at some level. And I think it's worth asking ourselves and myself, what do I need to believe? Like, like what do I come to God with that, you know, I'll believe? What do you come to God with asking in order to believe? I mean, we all do this. You know, if you don't know Christ today, have you ever said, you know, God, if you'll do something, then I'll believe. I'm just gonna warn you, he may not show you anything if you really want to come to faith in Christ. And those of us who know Christ, and at times our faith is wobbly and we just want a miracle. You know, I've said this before. You know, Jesus, if you just show up and be in front of me, then I'll, and that, you know, it's okay. But what the Bible shows us and the gospel has been explicit in, and I, I, I believe God still does. I, I do, and God does miracles. God does things that are amazing, that supernatural. He can still do that today, so I'm not saying that he never does it. And I would, I'd love him to do those things, but when it comes to engendering faith, the Bible gives us no indication that, that signs and wonders and all those things engender biblical faith. Why do I say that? Because the disciples got more miracles than anybody on the planet and they're nowhere to be found when they're most needed. Where's their faith? It's not. And I think it's true for you and I. It's not when we ask God, show us something, then I'll believe. It's, 
it's maybe this, and, and here you're gonna have to use your sanctified imagination. The centurion simply, get, I mean, he saw, he watched, he was right, it says it, he was right in front of Jesus. Maybe what our faith needs is some time with Jesus. I, I mean this. Well, Lord, what do you mean? I, I think maybe if we just took some time and looked at Jesus as he breathed his last breath. Well, Lloyd, how do you do that? Well, we've got the story right in front of us. Could it be that we take some time, you all, and we read it? And we won't read it to get done with it. We read it and we think about it. And we use our mind that God has given us and we put ourselves in front of Jesus on the cross and imagine ourselves there. Y'all don't, this is not weird. This is, we meditate, we think about it. And we look upon him and we see him forsaken so that we would not be. We see him suffer unspeakable shame so we would not have to. We, 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 We see him become sin, become sin and absorb the wrath, the infinite wrath of God on sin. He bore it on himself so I wouldn't have to and we see him breathe his last breath because we know, John tells us, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He was not a victim. He chose the moment when his last breath would go. I don't know. The centurion just watched the man breathe his last breath and some measure of faith awakened. Okay, that's the centurion. How about Joseph of Arimathea? Okay, Joseph, verse 43, we've read it. He was, uh, here's what we know. He was a wealthy man. He had a very high standing in the community, Jewish community. Um, He was a member of the Sanhedrin. So he was a part of the 70 men who condemned Jesus, you know, falsely for blasphemy and then for treason. Now, John tells us that Joseph didn't go along with the 70. So clearly those guys didn't, they weren't unanimous in what they said of Jesus for Joseph, it says, didn't go along with it. Um, A a man, a a, a massive reputation, quite frankly, a, a man of means, position, It says he was looking for the kingdom of God. Every Jew was looking for the kingdom of God. John tells us he was a disciple. What? Yeah, John says he was a disciple, but a secret one, so he didn't want other people to know. However, at his moment in time, he gathered up courage and he went and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, who should have been asking for the body? Who? The disciples? Remember John the Baptist's disciples went and said, can we have the, the body of our rabbi you know, or his family? They're not there. And so this literal you know, stranger pops up to take the body. Do you think the Romans, after they torture and crucify a person, suddenly they take the dead body and treat it with care? No, they throw it in the dump. They leave it on the cross. 
Let the birds eat it. But Joseph steps up to take the body of Christ. Do you think Joseph was afraid? I'm being serious. Do you think he was afraid when he went to talk to Pilate? What do you think? I, I, I do. Why, why do I say it? Because he's been in secret. I mean, the guy's been in secret this whole time. I think he's done with some fear. But he goes anyways, which again, you know this, that courage is not the absence of fear. No. I would say it this way. It's taking your fear with you as you do what God is leading you to do. Take the fear with you. You're coming with me and we're gonna do this, you see. That which God invites him to do. Um, two ways this could apply to us. Joseph and his act. The first would be this. Jesus did not secure his own tomb. Now, we know that Deuteronomy speaks, says that you know, anyone hanging on a tree is cursed and that you're supposed to take a dead, a, a Jewish, supposed to take the body down before the Sabbath. So that, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that his body comes down. But Jesus, we don't know of any place that he made these arrangements. He did, it, we don't know that he made these. So how is it that Joseph does this? Well, it seems that Jesus trusted his heavenly father to care for his body when he couldn't. And I think it's a great reminder for you and I that when God invites us to take a step of faith and we, we don't know how it's gonna, how it's gonna, things are gonna be provided, so to speak, that God in his providence has a Joseph of Arimathea. We didn't even know he was there, but God put him there should encourage us in steps of faith. Secondly, let me flip it and turn it on its head. Do you believe that God has invited you to be a Joseph of Arimathea for someone else? You think about that? Do you, do you think God in his providence and sovereignty has so put you in the world such that there's a moment in time when God invites you to take this step of faith. And in taking that step of faith, you discover it wasn't even about you. It was about what he was doing for someone else that he's invited you to participate in. And this sounds a lot like Ephesians 4 to me when the part of the body is connected to the other part of the body and all the parts are doing their parts, the body is built up. And so God may be inviting you, and I believe he does all the time, to be a Joseph of Arimathea and to take your fear with you and take the step of faith for God is using you in someone else's life. I, I find it interesting, verse 46, look at that, verse 46, the back end says Joseph bought a linen cloth. Now, let me ask you, did Joseph buy the linen cloth to wrap Jesus's body in before he went to Pilate or after he went to Pilate according to what we can tell in the text? Which is it? Say it out. After, after, he bought it after. I think he bought it after. It seemed to indicate this. Which tells us 
that when he went to Pilate, he didn't know if he was even going to get the body. Which, which I'm going to say this, all he knew was, I need to ask Pilate for the body. Whatever happens after that, that's up to God. How many times do you and I get stuck in faith? Because we picture faith like this. Well, God's calling me to do this so that this will happen. The problem is when we get to, so this will happen, we've gone too far. You just go, God's calling me to do this. Whatever happens, whatever happens. We need to step back and, and not take responsibility for the results of steps of faith and just do the very thing that God says, I know you're afraid, but in Christ Jesus, bring your fear along and trust me for this. And I'll take care of all of this. Instructive for us. Well, where are you in the story? Let's talk about application practically for you and I. If you've never put your faith in Christ and you're in this room, and it suddenly makes sense to you at some level that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. That's why he died. He had no sin of his own and that he died on the cross for your sin. He was buried and raised. Then, then a step of faith for you would be to believe. Believe it's true for you. Um, if you've put your faith in Christ and your faith needs some renewing, maybe there's a part of you that says, I need to take some time and just Look at Jesus like the centurion did and watch him breathe his last breath. Or again, if you're in faith, is there an area of your life that your faith is incognito? What do I mean by that? I mean this, if you're sitting in this room, then you know, you're here at some level because you wanna know God or you know, your faith's on display. You're, you're not hiding right here. But I don't know, is there some area in your life where in your classroom, in your job setting, in your neighborhood, at the soccer team, where you go to, that, that, that your, the fact of your standing with Jesus is kinda, it's with you. You know, you know, they know I'm an honest man, I'm a good man, but I don't really bring up Jesus. And you know what I'm saying? Is, is God inviting you to step out of your secret discipleship and stand with the one who died for you, regardless of what it costs you? I really think this, it cost Joseph everything. I wanna invite Carl to come out with the band and uh, we are going to respond corporately in song. I'm gonna invite you to stand now. And I'll get back up at the end to dismiss us. But why do we sing? We sing because we want these truths to penetrate far beyond our mind. And sometimes this song can do that for us and help us. Paul describes this very dark, dark day in Mark this way to the Philippians church. Uh, when the Bible, by the way, speaks of a name, it's not just saying J-E-S-U-S. -S. When the Bible says name, it's describing the whole of a person, all that they are and all that they encompass and all that they've done, the name. 
And when, when Paul recalls for the Philippians this dark, dark day, he describes it in this way. He says, Jesus being found the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that the name of Je- at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. There will come a day when every knee will bow, but there will be a day when knees bow and acknowledge Jesus as the son of God, but it'll be too late. We get to declare it today. And that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let that be our song today. The one who died for us. His name is Jesus.